Good morning. Turning your Bibles or in your bullets into Hebrews chapter 12. Short passage this morning, 12, 1 through 3. On May the 6th, 1954, English runner Roger Bannister became the first human being to run a mile, at least a recorded mile, in under four minutes. This world record he held for exactly six weeks is all. Uh, Six weeks later, an Australian runner by the name of John Landy beat his time by more than a second. These two runners had very different running styles. Landy loved to get out in front, set the pace. Uh, He he was the, the, the hare, not the tortoise. Landy would often lead his races from wire to wire. Bannister preferred to run from behind, to kind of hide out in the weeds, but he had an absolutely devastating kick that he would utilize on the final, the final lap. Bannister and Landy squared off in 1954, August of 1954, in the, the Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, British Columbia. A, a few of us, very few of us looking at, <laughs> very few of us here uh, this morning probably remember that. It was considered one of the most anticipated races in history. And true to script, Landy led from the beginning of the race almost all the way through. But as Bannister made his move on the final lap and the pro-Bannister crowd was cheering so wildly, do you remember what happened? Landy panics and he commits the cardinal sin of racing, which is you never look back. He looks over his left shoulder and as uh, as he's looking over his shoulder, kind of like Lot's wife, like Lot's wife, he looks back. And as he's looking over his shoulder, Bannister passes him on the final curve. Uh, both men turn in sub-four-minute miles, one of the most famous races in history. It was called the Miracle Mile. We've got an awesome passage today, one of our, probably one of your favorites in the Bible, certainly one of mine. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, that likens our Christian pilgrimage and journey to a race. That we are not to look back while we're running. <clears throat> Let's read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer, sometimes translated that way, also the author, the founder, the leader, the, uh, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down, here's the Ascension reference on Ascension Sunday, and sat down in heaven at the, at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think we had the famous Idaho potato race a couple weeks ago. Anybody here running that? You did? Yeah. Uh, We had Roby Creek several weeks prior to that. Um, I've never run in a race that had people lining the, the way, but what I've heard from, from those who, of you who have, when you, there's a large group of 
of folk standing alongside the course and, and cheering you. I mean, none of us, we're so unaccustomed to have lots and lots of people cheering us doing something difficult. When you have that, I've heard, it's, it's an adrenaline rush you never forget. And it was adrenaline rush that I, I was hoping to enjoy. Seven years ago, I started training for the Chicago Marathon. I think I, I've told some of you my Chicago Marathon story. My Chicago Marathon tragedy. <laughs> I started training at the beginning of the summer. And I think I started with just three-mile runs, and then you gradually, you know, three. It's the Hal Higdon program. What I, Martin got me onto it. You go three, then you do four, then you do five. Well, I trained through the whole summer, running up and down the green belt. And I get to my very last training run prior to my marathon. It was 22 miles. And uh, I'm out there. But the day before, I, I, think, I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I'm doing so well with my shoes as they are right now. But wouldn't it be amazing if I just got these new gel inserts? And, and I would do 22 perfectly cushioned miles. So I, the day before my run, I tra- changed them out. And then... What ends up happening, well, anybody who knows biomechanics knows that's a very bad idea. <laughs> and so I finished all 22 miles, but I ended up like tearing something in my, my uh, calf in the process. But what I think I was most disappointed about, yes, I was disappointed about just the regret of, um, of never being able to say that I ran a marathon. But what I heard is so thrilling about the Chicago Marathon is a million people come out and watch and cheer you. Have any of us ever had a million people cheering us? The answer is, oh, yes. Yes, we have. We've had tens of million. Don't you see that that's what's being said here? Remember the great heroes of our faith that were in chapter 11? Those heroes haven't disappeared. Everyone from Abel to Abraham to David to Samson of all, to Gideon to Samuel, all of those, he says, they're there standing alongside the race course cheering us. It's true. You say, Abraham cheering me? No, it's true. They're all waving their flags in the stands. Go, you can do it. Encouraging us to do what, in fact, they did, which is to complete the race, to finish the race, and to finish the race in style. The question I want to ask this morning, we'll answer in the, in the sermon, is what is necessary for us to run the race with uh, efficiency and success? What is necessary for us to run this race well? And the first, I just said it, the first is this, hear the crowd. Hear the, he, see the crowd. Feel the energy of knowing that your heroes, your, your greatest heroes, if you're a Christian, uh, your greatest heroes are the Old Testament saints uh, on whose shoulders you stand. And the New Testament saints and all of the, the martyrs. I mean, think how many Christians have been martyred over this last century alone in Soviet gulags and uh, by, you know, Idi Amin. And, and uh, the, they're all of these, these brothers and sisters who have run the race before us and they are wildly clapping with each stride that we take. If you can get your imagination working on something like that, uh, some of us, I think part of the problem of growing older is we just lose our imagination. It's very difficult for us to imagine millions clapping for us. Um, 
But if you can get your imagination doing this, it's immensely galvanizing if you realize this. You know, one of the breaks between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christianity is uh, they say that the saints are up in heaven and we can pray to them. You pray to your patron saint, your patron saint kind of prays for you or asks Jesus for favors for you. Uh, I mean, based on my reading of scripture, I never see that in the Bible. But they are cheering for you. (laughs) They are cheering for you. That might even be better. (laughs) There's another group that's watching the race that are actually not named in this passage. Uh, They're not here, but they're cheering your defeat. Satan and his minions are watching you, uh, hoping for your defeat. If you listen carefully, you can hear their jeering taunts. Their words. And, and, and if you, again, if you can get your imagination working on this, you will find that that too is amazingly galvanizing. If you're running a marathon and you know that there are people on the marathon route who are actively willing you to fail, you'd be like, I ain't stopping for nothing. I'm going to show them. It, it doesn't matter how bad I am hurting. Nothing would make me stop. I mean, some of us have that kind of personality where... Yeah, we like the cheers, but we, we want to stick it to the man more than anything else. And the, and the thought that there are enemies who are jeering at me, there are heroes who are cheering, enemies are, who are jeering, nothing is going to make me stop. Feel, first of all, feel the crowd. Second, the second thing that he says that we must do to run the race with success is it's pretty simple. We have to get rid of the heavy weights that are slowing us down. Get rid of the heavy weights that are slowing us down. The Biggest Loser is a reality television show on CBS that is now in its 18th season. I don't watch reality TV, so this is a sermon illustration completely from (laughs) non-experience. This is just me reading about it. I mean, I know the the gist of the show. You you take severely uh, uh, obese folk, and they spend the whole show trying to lose a tremendous amount of weight, and, and most of them do. The, the record, one guy began the contest of Biggest Loser at 526 pounds, and over the course of however many months they do it, he dropped 264 pounds. Wow. Uh, on the first day at boot camp, they have the contestants run a mile, and as would be expected, very few of them finish the race. Fast forward several months later after they've been training with America's best personal trainers, America's best nutritionists, etc. At the end of the, the contest, they have the remaining contestants once again run that race. And if, if you've dropped 250 pounds, you know this is going to be a piece of cake. You, you'll be able to complete it. But as they go outside, they find that when they run the race the second time, they will, they will be running in a bodysuit that weighs the exact amount of weight that they have lost. And so they run the race, most of them make it, and by the end of it, they, they get out of, the, out of the bodysuit as quickly as possible, and they say the same thing. They say, I cannot believe I, was, I used to be carrying all of that. That may be the first words out of our, out of our mouths when we get to heaven. I mean, probably the first words out of our mouths, we're just going to be stunned at, that, that this is all real. <laughs> After the resurrection, this is real, Christ is real, We'll be amazed to see Jesus. Uh, yes, obviously, but but we're just gonna we're, we're gonna be shocked how much weight 
we have been carrying down here. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you, we start out this race with rhino on our backs. It's called original sin. And man, is it heavy. And things then only get heavier as we go along. I mean, we get weighed down uh, by, um, some of us come from fairly dysfunctional home lives, and we've got tons of family of origin issues. Some of us get weighed down by riches. Doesn't Jesus say that? The money weighs you down. Some of us get weighed down by kids. Trust me, kids weigh you down and all this, the anxieties associated with having a family. Paul, that's why Paul says that celibacy is, is a great calling. Because kids, they, yeah. Some of us get weighed down by our, our talents. If you're really good at something, then you always have to live up to the standard. Some of us get weighed down by our success. We get put in charge of organizations, uh, there's a lot of money riding on our leadership. Some of us get weighed down by, by beauty. I mean, you can go through the list. But look what he says in verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders. So the first thing is you throw off the weight of hindrances. Um, hindrances. It could be a friendship. It could be a, real, a pleasure, an, an entertainment, a talent. But it's something that is good but is dragging you down. And he says, you must strip it away. Then second, he says, and throw off the sin. I like this image. The sin that so easily entangles. So in the second part of the metaphor, it's not so much that we have the weight. It's that we have the ropes. (laughs) We're trying to run the marathon and we've got ropes tied around our legs, which is a very difficult way to run. And so he says, throw off the weights and, and sever the cords And when you're doing this, resist the impulse to say, well, I've tried many times before. I can't change. Don't say that. Don't rise up against the Bible at this point and say that sins can't be laid aside. Besetting sins can't be laid aside. It can't happen. Yes, it can. God has spoken this command, not for nothing. What's weighing you down? You may remember that Greek athletes in the Olympics, how would they compete? In the buff. They would compete compete naked. I wonder if in heaven, after the resurrection, I never even thought about this before until this morning. I wonder if in heaven and and after the resurrection, we won't actually be naked. Because Adam and Eve were that way, without shame, without guilt, without self-consciousness. Will our resurrected bodies, we will certainly feel very different In the words of the prophet, we will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not grow and not grow faint. That's what it's going to feel like. We're going to be amazed. He says, bring heaven into the present and put off the weight now. That's number number two. Third point. Third point. The race is, and I've already talked about this a little bit already, but the race is a long haul and you need strict training and patient endurance to complete this race. It's obviously, it's not 100 meters, right? Uh, We've all seen people go too fast out of the blocks at the beginning of the Christian race. And then, I don't know what happens. They hit middle age. Maybe they just hit adulthood. And they were on fire for Jesus when they were young. But then they hit that stage. They went out too fast. 
and they run out of steam. They lose all energy for active Christian living. They, they're still in the race, but they're walking, barely walking. Because he says, he describes it here as the race, that is, it, the race is marked out for us. You don't mark out, to any great degree, 100 meters. But you do mark out a marathon that's winding through Central Park, that's headed down city streets, that goes over the Brooklyn Bridge, that runs along the shoreline. You run out, you mark out a winding marathon. It's interesting because in verse 1, when it speaks about the race, the Greek word for race there is the word agon, A-G-O-N, from which we get the word agony. <laughs> the, the life, the race is an agony. Let me read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, because maybe you thought of this passage when uh, it, it's always oftentimes paired with Hebrews 12. Uh, 9.24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? He says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, Corinth was the location of, of not the Olympic games, but the Ismithian games. So they, they would have picked up on this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that is perishable, but we do it to get a crown that is imperishable and will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize." This is Paul's passage on self-discipline. He begins it by saying, uh, you go into strict training to compete. No athlete trains only on Saturday. You can't go to the Olympics and be a weekend warrior. Everything in your life has to be ordered by strict training. That's why athletes, they, they follow a very full schedule. You don't eat too much. You don't eat too little. You don't sleep too much. You don't sleep too little. Everything is you're directed with that goal in mind, all of your desires are subordinated to that one, one great desire. And what is the desire according to Paul? It's the prize, right? It's the crown. It's the, what is, let me ask you this question. What is the one thing, if I were to take it out of your life, what is the one thing that would leave you feeling like you don't want to go on another day? What is the one thing, if we removed it from you, your life would begin to collapse. Well, that's your prize. That's your supreme good. The thing without which life would be pointless and, and meaningless. And what ends up happening is we basically subordinate all of our desires to that one thing. What Paul says, when you're in the race, what you really need to be doing is you subordinate your desire to eat ice cream and you subordinate your desire to eat six McDonald's hamburgers which I did on a date once with Aaron. <laughs> Very romantic of me. <laughs> you subordinate all your desires to win the crown that is imperishable, that will never fade. And what do Christians do once they get the crown? What does it say? We throw them at Jesus' feet. The race that is marked out before us feels like agony. And we, when we are running the race feel like we are getting weaker and weaker. 
I liken in this, this to this uh, idea that if you go to the gym and you're doing bicep curls, what happens is with every curl that you make, you're feeling like you're getting weaker and weaker. Whenever you're lifting, you don't feel like you're getting stronger and stronger. You're becoming more and more like spaghetti, more and more like pasta as you go. Guess what? The weaker you feel you're getting, the stronger you're getting. That's how the exercise works. And brothers and sisters, if we learn how to run the race according to the author of Hebrews, with self-discipline, if we learn endurance, if we exercise, if we learn humility, we're going to go through long periods of suffering. I mean, that's been one of the themes of this book, is how much those Christians had to suffer. And we will go through suffering, of course. It'll feel like our faith is getting weaker. Our patience is getting thinner. Our courage is evaporating. You're not going to feel like you're getting stronger. But brothers and sisters, you are. Because God the Holy Spirit takes the agonizing struggle of the race and uses that to shape you and conform you more and more into the image of the Son. Fourth and last point. This has to be the last point, right? Because this is the greatest point. You're to keep your eyes on the one who is standing at the finish line in the center of the great cloud of witnesses waiting there to greet you at the finish line. Who is this person waiting to greet us? As I said, as I'm reading it in verse 2, he's, that word is translated several different ways. Sometimes it's called, he's called our pioneer. Other times, uh, the author, the founder, the leader, the, the Greek word. Okay, I got, I'm doing probably too much Greek in this sermon. But um, just this, the Greek word is very simple. It's, it's uh, archegos. A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S. Now put a hyphen halfway in that, in between there. What you get is arch hyphen ego. And that's why a number of people have translated, Jesus is our arch ego, the, the highest of me. That is why they, in some of the Greek literature, ancient Greek literature, it's translated as champion. Why champion? Oh, here's how one writer puts it. In the Greek and Roman myths, a champion, arch-ego, was a figure of great power who could stand in and, and fight on your behalf. He says, imagine some great villain, uh, a cyclops or a dragon, takes a large group of people hostage. The, the arch-ego, Hercules, would be the one who comes forward and stands as your champion. And he could do it in one of two ways. One way is he could take all of the dragon's fire. So the dragon is breathing out his worst on you, and you've got the dragon's full attention, and that allows the hostages to kind of run, run off st- stage left here and make it out of the way. Uh, he, could, he could take the clubbing of the cyclops, which enables the hostages... He, in this scenario, all the poison darts would be sucked up by the champion standing in their place as a substitute. The other way that a champion, an archigo, works is he could function kind of the David and Goliath scenario. He could challenge the villain to mortal combat. This is the scenario when the champions face off in a death match with all of their muscles and courage, and it's a winner take all. How wonderfully absurd is this idea of kind of a David and Goliath death match? That if you are a hostage in this instance, you're a 90-pound 
weakling of a hostage. Nevertheless, you triumph over the great dragon. Why? Because you are victorious in your arch ego and your champion. All of your champion's strength is your strength, even though you're such a, you, you're such a weakling. So the author of Hebrews is making this point. On the cross, Jesus, he, he took the punishment we deserved. All the poison, all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the punishment, all of the death and hell that should have fallen into our hearts because we are sinners, fell into his. And we are, verse 2, to fix our eyes on this Jesus, who it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. I always found that a fascinating statement. What does it mean for Jesus to scorn the shame of the cross? I had to look up the word scorn in the dictionary to try to answer that question. Dictionary definition of scorn. Scorn is to mock, to scoff at, to sneer at, to laugh at derisively, to disdain, to curl one's lip at and say, ha, that's how our champion faced the cross. That's how he faced the enemy. He went in sneering at it. He went to the cross expecting Complete victory. He believed that the cross, on the cross, this is one of the doctrines of our view of the atonement, that on the cross he would cast out the ruler of this world. He'd triumph over the devil and all of his foes. He went to the cross confident of victory, believing that his father would vindicate him on the third day. And indeed, God did reward his son's courageous sacrifice by raising him from the dead and causing him to ascend to his right hand of the throne of God. And what this also means then, brothers and sisters, is if you are a Christian, when God looks at you, he sees your arch ego. <laughs> he, he doesn't see your ego. He sees your exalted ego. He sees the perfect righteousness of your champion. If you're a Christian, this means God gives you all of the love and the honor that he would give to his son. That is what he sees. He loves you as much as if you had done all of the deeds, the wonderful deeds of love and courage that Jesus did in his race, as if you were the one who said, not my will, but thine be done, as if you had lived the incredible record of Jesus' faithfulness. And so the joy, we come finally to the joy. What is the joy it says, what is, for the joy set before him, he endured. What is the joy? I'm, I'm, really, what is the joy? What was, what was Christ's joy? Yeah, it, it was the joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It should make us smile. <laughs> the joy that took him to the cross was to see us come to glory. Jesus put up with the foul torture of crucifixion, a degrading, disgusting, excruciating, and agonizing way of death because of the joy of setting us free. <laughs> a few concluding thoughts. Uh, Landy and Bannister both said after the Miracle Mile, they both said after the race, that, uh, that, and you hear this from athletes all the time, but they said, that man brought out the best in me. That man brought out, I would have never run that well if I didn't have that man put
pushing me. The difference, of course, about our race is we're not competing with each other. We're running together. And the goal is for all of us to cross the line. So we're pushing each other. We're helping each other run the best time as possible. At the same time, we are, we're picking up those on the course who break a leg and need to be carried. We carry, we should be carrying the wounded with us across the finish line if need be. Concluding thoughts. So shed pounds. It is perfectly appropriate to go home this afternoon and ask yourself, what do I need to put off? What sins do I need to cut? What? And again, don't use the comp out that I just can't do it. It won't happen. I've tried before. No. Maybe even just having this metaphor of the picture of so much weight on you that you need to shed, maybe that metaphor will help you make some decisions about changes that need to happen. Most of all, though, look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If... Uh, We'd say to all of our graduates, thank you, Alex, for the the prayer. It's so appropriate. Uh, But we would say, like Alex said in the prayer, we don't care. We do not care how much money you go on to make, what kind of job you get. We don't care if you give us cute grandkids one day in the future. We care that you would never quit running. You'd be Forrest Gump. You just keep running and looking to Jesus. May it be that every person in this room runs for the joy that is set before us, finishes the race, and receives the prize that we lay down at the Savior's feet. Amen.